Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. On today's show, we continue our serialized analysis stroke by stroke of the big three, and it is time to discuss the forehand. But first, we will get into uh, some Miami memories because, of course, we are enjoying the Miami Masters 1000, despite the absence of the big three, but Joel and I and, and Amy as well, we're going over uh, some of our, our memories from past and prior Miami tournaments. And Joel, one that really stuck out to me, I want to hear, uh, hear what you remember from this is you saw Djokovic very early on. He was a teenager in his first win over Rafael Nadal in Miami. Yeah, I was very impressed. It was 2007. So, wow, it's 14 years ago. He was 19 just prior, Novak had reached the finals at Indian Wells. So he was hitting the radar. He'd won some tournaments. It was clear to a degree how good he was. And then there he is in Miami. He avenges that loss to Nadal in straight sets. In the semis, he beats his, uh, his peer, Murray. Remember, those guys are only a week apart in age. Beats him 1-0. and oh. So in the finals, this is back when it was still a best-of-five final. He plays Guillermo Cañas. And, and Cañas, for the second tournament in a row, had beaten Roger Federer. I mean, it's funny to just go way back to these players like Guillermo Cañas, who was somewhat of a, uh, you would have liked him, Gil, kind of a Ferrer-type player, just a real mm-hmm. grinding kind of player. He fought off a match point to beat Federer. I was at that match, too. A great atmosphere. I mean, the, the Miami Stadium is a tremendous energy and like a soccer-like feel. And, uh, and then, so here's Novak in the finals. He's going to play this Cañas, who's pretty hot, beats him in straight sets, like mm-hmm. just completely... Relaxed, like uh, like one of my favorite lyrics, like he was walking onto a yacht, like completely relaxed. And he was just tremendous, so focused and so balanced. All the things, it would be interesting to watch that a little closer and then see how Novak has evolved over the 14 years. But still, all the signs were there. So was was he the youngest to ever win? 19, 19 has got to be. Agassi was, uh, Agassi won in 1990. So he would have been 19. Courier, I'm, I'm kind of just, I'm just going right off my head. Um, mm-hmm. Close well, and possibly, yeah. Uh, yeah, possibly. He, you'd have to do one. Of, it would be one of those months and days. Okay. Calculations. I think. Yeah, he might have been because Agassi's April birthday, Novak May. I mean, close enough. Win, win a big title like that as a teenager. All right. Well, Novak at the time is number ten in the world. And by the way, I just want to add one thing: the straight sets victory in the final is actually a three set victory because it was best of five at that time Mm -hmm. um joel what was the perception that that you remember of novak djokovic coming up as as he was number 10 in the world he was young he was dangerous um what what was uh what was his buzz well the buzz that he was pretty darn good i mean it wasn't certain i mean and, and murray was already making moves then too so they were a little paired as kind of next gen ascendants i mean by this is early 07. By this time, Nadal has already won two French. Roger is kind of ruling the world at this stage. And, and so it's not quite, it, I don't think it 
Miami 07, I don't think anyone would have said, oh, Novak, yeah, he'll be number three for a few years next. I don't think that was quite there yet, as I recall. But, But his skill was good. It was impressive. And he was solid and fit. And again, it was... You know, the, the, pre, the pre-2011 Novak is a little different. Starting 11 is really when it begins the years of greatness. But again, 2007 Miami, by the end of the year, he's reached the U.S. Open final and he's, he's settling into be three. And by January 08, he's winning the Australian Open. Uh, a lot of these tournaments like uh, Miami and Indian Wells often pride themselves on saying, hey, the man or woman who wins this tournament, who strikes it big here when they're young, Within 12 months, they come back with something really big. And that's happened often in the history mm. of tennis. Like Jim Currier wins Miami in 91, and he goes on to win the French. And so they come back with yet more goodies. And that's kind of a neat thing about, about these Masters Thousands. So Novak then, he was, he was impressive. But again, no, I don't think, and again, no one, no one can predict anyone is going to win you know, past 10 majors. That's unbelievable. Although Rafael Nadal did reveal in his autobiography, Rafa, that he was he was afraid of no when I say afraid, I just mean respectful of of his danger, dangerous nature. Uh, before Novak was who Novak was. And Uncle Tony was really high on Novak from the very start when he was a teenager. But it's interesting you say that, Joel, about Miami being kind of a springboard, because I also think that Nadal, and then we'll get to Federer in a moment. Nadal, who's never won Miami and is 0-5 in finals and lost one to Davidenko and a couple to Djokovic and a couple to Federer, despite not having a title, it feels like his first match ever against Roger Federer in 2004 in Miami kind of set the tone for that rivalry and set the tone in a way where it was like, okay, this is a serious threat to Roger Federer. Absolutely. And this was less than two months after Federer had become number one in the world. So Federer reached the number one ranking in 04, winning the Australian. He's, he, and he'd already held the Wimbledon title. So Roger, and, and, and the Roger buzz, you know, makes me think a bit of like Michael Jordan, where it's like, yeah, this guy is really good. He's more than really good. And, you, and it's seen quickly and early in the guy's thing. Like no one was thinking, no one after Federer won Wimbledon in 2003, will he win another slam? <laughs> I was like, that wasn't a question. So now he comes into Miami in early 04 and this 17 year old who hasn't even played the French yet, uh, knocks him off and has a lot of the Nadal signs, though it's still kind of raw. I mean, it's, it's the forehand, it's the get the serve and play, it's the running, it's the intensity. Yeah, and he, he jolted, he jolted Roger that time. And a year later was beating him two sets to love in the final, again, best of five final. And Nadal lost that match. Probably his best chance to win the tournament was that first final he reached in 05. So you guys said that Nadal was in the final five times and it's never won. And I would think that because of the Spanish speaking and Miami being, you know, this hot Latin city that Nadal would want to win that one, but it, it is not helped by its position on the calendar, which is right before clay season. And he's trying to prep for clay season and it's a hard court. Well, but it's, and it's also though, it's also after Indian Wells. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's so, um, there's a lot of physicality. You know, it's a lot of hard court wear and tear for Rafa. And so oh. that's a good point. And then he's come across some opponents and yeah, I mean, it's just, you look at those things in the big picture and then you look in the small picture, like, oh, you know, Novak and Roger got you. 
well, okay, Davidenko, where'd that happen? I mean, but those things happen. I mean, that's kind of the neat thing about tennis and Roger beat him in 05 and then the resurgent Roger got him in 2017. Davidenko so. is, is notoriously Nadal's like worst matchup in the world. I, is it four and zero or something like that? I don't think Nadal's ever defeated him. Um, but uh, let's move ahead here because I do think that Nadal kind of sent a message to the entire tour and Roger Federer in 2004. Then I think Djokovic does the same thing in 2011 when he completes the sunshine double. We all know about how great Djokovic's 2011 season was, but I think that was where it was like, okay, this is, this is a special player right now. This isn't just a great player. This isn't just the best player in the world. This is a historically good player after he wins Indian Wells. And then he beats Nadal in the final in Miami in a, in a third set tie break. And it was another, it was an amazing match. Yeah. The sunshine double. That's an important thing. I mean, it would always be interesting to make like a list of the, the some of the neat non-slam achievements, whether it's the sunshine double, whether it's Monte Carlo, whether it's, you know, whether it's, I mean, it's or it's two, two red clay wins, or is it Canada, Cincinnati, or whatever those happen to be. But that was a real impressive run from Novak in 2011. I mean, he'd won the Australian and then again, he, he wins these two and now he's won the Miami six times. He's tied with Agassi for the most ever. Yeah. And then to, to put a cherry on the top of this for Roger Federer, Miami, a sunshine double of his own in 2017 mm -hmm. that is where he captured his third straight win over Nadal and that really cemented uh, a very distinctive turn in the rivalry it was a point where you just could not argue anymore that Federer had kind of solved that Nadal puzzle at least for the time being so significant moments really for all three um, in Miami well 2017 Roger I mean, that's got to be like the ultimate. I mean, if there are any more cherries on the top of his Sunday, they're <laughs> dentist. I mean, my God, he was just, that was, that that might be that period from January 17 to let's say um, the Australian 18 and then regaining the number one ranking at the age of 36. I mean, what a, what a resurgence that was for Federer and the Miami stuff. In fact, in, and on that Miami 17, a great match with Nick Kyrgios, that was all tiebreakers that Federer won in a third set tiebreak. And that had that, that Miami energy that Amy was talking about. Yeah, it's interesting though, how uh, hasn't quite caught for Rafa and he'll, he'll, he'll be, no one likes being part of a tournament where they've lost in the finals five times and haven't won it. But then he marches on and then he goes off to Monte Carlo where you lost track of how many times he's won it. Yes. And Nadal has not played Miami since 2017. So, um, you know, that, that, that factors in and uh, part of the place in the calendar as well. Let's move on to the forehand. This is, uh, to me at least, let, let's start here. For me, it's the foundation of modern tennis is, is the mm -hmm. forehand. Right, do you agree, Amy? Yeah, it's, it's for the vast majority of players, it's the centerpiece or the pillar that holds up the rest of their game. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
and I, I think it's an interesting, it's a really interesting conversation with these three, especially I think with Nadal and Federer, because you can make a lot of arguments both ways. They have distinct forehands that are deployed in different ways and act in different ways. Which one's better? It's a really interesting conversation to have. We're never going to reach a, a definitive conclusion, but on, on the way to discussing that question, I know that we can take it a lot of interesting places. So um, Amy, let me give you the floor on, on comparing Federer's forehand to Nadal's forehand. Well, it's interesting that we're doing this show because I'm working on a little mini project with a group of coaches from uh, data-driven sports analytics. And Shane is the main guy there. And um, he's looking at the grips of all the, um, the forehand grips of all the ATP players or the, maybe the top 25 or something like that. And he's been emailing me little bits of his research because he wants me to write about it and I will at some point. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to me that our three have three different grips and one, uh, Federer has the Eastern grip on his forehand which um, is, you know, less margin, but um, some would say more versatile because you can handle short balls better and uh, maybe more conducive to approaching and that kind of thing. Um, and it totally fits his personality. Um, Nadal, of course, has, Shane tells me it's not totally Western, it's between semi-Western and Western to get technical about it. But it's obviously a more Western grip that um, makes use of the top spin and uh, gives him tons of margin and, and lots of jump. And um, Djokovic has the semi-Western, which according to Shane is really the best grip. And it's the big reason why Djokovic has been able to win on the different surfaces and adapt quickly to the different surfaces. And uh, personally, I think Djokovic maybe has the most improved forehand of the three right now. That's a fascinating assessment. I would love to see. I want It'd be fun to see the visuals when they come out to see where the grips in the hand is located. The, the, the Federer-Nadal contrast is pretty obvious. Where Novak fits in, where they all fit on the spectrum of that, I think is really fascinating. Novak, no question, the most improved. A, the other ones, the other guys were pretty, pretty A to A plus anyway. And Novak in the early years, including that 07 through 2010 period that we were talking about earlier, a little wobbly, sometimes a little too flat. So I don't know if it was moving the grip or making the shape to get some more margin. And uh, it's funny, Amy, you must have been reading my notes because I wrote like one word to describe each of these forehands. And for Nadal, I had the word jump because we know obviously what he does, his, he hits the forehand that busts the contact points. And the lefty part is massively significant because the natural shot, the natural cross court goes to the righty backhand. I mean, we could probably find some records somewhere about Nadal versus one-handed backhands. And it took the great Roger Federer to make several wholesale changes to kind of problem solve that racket size, backhand technique, court positioning, footwork, which Roger has, you know, so Barishnikov could, could do that. Not so easy for a great many others. So it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think, I think with Shane, I mean, Novak, maybe now, whatever best, you know, this gets to our, reminds me of our serve discussion, best for what, for whom, for when, where, 
you know. Well, most adaptable was, I mean, ah. for me, for me, um, and I, I'm a big fan of semi-Western because that's my grip. And, and to me, it's, um, it's the, the problem I have with the Eastern grip is that it's so much like continental that, or it's just one degree over from continental that if, it's easy for me to go from semi-Western to continental because they're two defined different grips. So if I get a little slippage or something like that, I can click right back into it. Um, I think semi-Western is that grip that is able to adapt to different surfaces. You got a low ball, you know, you can click over, you got a high ball, you can get some margin. Um, it's easy on the body. Um, I think that his research is going to show that it, it truly is the superior. That doesn't mean that Novak has a superior forehand, but um, oh, I, mean, I just raised the issue of grips. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Well, I think the grip, I think a grip is a great begins. It's, it's the starting point mm -hmm. of this shot, which by the way, has always been the big shot in tennis. It's always been the forehand or the backhand. I mean, there are areas where servant volley was more prevalent, but throughout the history of tennis, if you had a choice of a big forehand or a big backhand, it's always been the forehand that is the real, the shot that really delivers things. And, and, and backhands have improved and the two-hander and the role of Thompson. With grips though, like, and you have a one-handed backhand, Amy? Yeah, but and so it's, a, it's an Eastern backhand grip. You've got a lot, you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of, a lot of traveling to do to get- Oh, I got, I got so many grips. I mean- How were, uh, <laughs> how were most points I would say right now it almost feels like a lot of the time most points are are won with the forehand, and I think a lot of the time when I when I throw on YouTube and watch um, tennis a couple eras back, it it feels like most points are won at the net. Well, right, they were won with the net, but in the in the era they still had ground strokes. Then no question, like yeah. if you're going thirty or forty years, but but they really have a forehand, whether it was. Yvonne Lendl or Jimmy Arias or John Newcomb or Jack Kramer. I mean, the, the forehand was a useful shot to have and you didn't, and, and the backhands weren't as good. So you served to the backhand if you were serving volley a lot and the forehand was considered, but it was more, it was more up and down and the continental could be kind of slappy and, and uh, Laver's forehand and his backhand was great, but his forehand was, it's just, it's a different way. Or, or Jimmy, right? Or Connors. Well, Connors was the backhand. Connors backhand was better than his forehand. Right. But so, Gil, you said that most points are won on the forehand. Probably most points are lost on the forehand as well. Either, well yes. Yeah, well, the, the whole game is the forehand, except for a very few odd players. Right. Oh, no, I think, for sure. I, I think Amy's right. If totally right. If, uh, if you had a choice of a big forehand or a big backhand, take the forehand. Like I always find forehand people... I joke because I'm not a forehand person. I'm a little more of a backhand person of my one-handed. Forehand people, they don't care that they have a worse backhand. They run around and they manage the backhand. Then they keep it in play and they're fine. And they can just bully you with that forehand. Well, sure. Let, well, let's, let's make this very simple, very clear. Uh, nobody's backhand is as good as... as first, uh, let's take Novak Djokovic, who's known for his backhand. His forehand's still better. His forehand yeah. does more damage. It, it's yeah. better. Now, it, comparative to the average player, his backhand is better. There is a larger gap between Djokovic's backhand and everyone else's backhand. And, and that becomes very clear when he gets into those ad court rallies and he breaks down these righties backhand to backhand. But it's not like Novak is going to 
when he has plenty of time on the ad court, it's not like he's not going to run around and hit a forehand because that's the more damaging shot. No, but you mean his forehand does more for him. As yes. as a, that's different than saying it's, you didn't mean to say it's better than his backhand. It does. Yeah, it, 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 well, it accomplishes I, more for him, but I, this is an interesting point about Novak. It, by the other hand, if I was coaching versus him, I knew I'd have to somehow find my way to that forehand because I, that backhand is impregnable, but this is the whole, I mean, I think Amy, you tweeted something recently about this, about the role of the backhand is what's the O'Shaughnessy term, the shield? The shield versus the sword. The forehand the, the sword, the backhand is the shield. The backhand is that the backhands don't break down. It's a very, you know, Novak's backhand does not break down, but that, that's why he's, he's got the, he's probably got the most balanced ratio because his forehand isn't the brilliant one while his backhand is really good. And our guy, yeah. Nadal's got a pretty good backhand, but the forehand is unbelievable. And there's a lot of this, I'd say the same thing with Roger. Yeah, well, right. uh, two different coaches have told me that you used to be able to break down Novak's forehand, right. but within the last two years, you can't anymore. It's it's extremely com- uh, improved. It's much more reliable, and it's much more of a weapon. I think it's been it's been really good though for for a long time, right? Yeah. Since, I mean, yeah. uh, here's the thing with Novak. It was interesting, Amy, because I I did try to tee you up on on Federer and Nadal. Then you put Novak in, which I'm I'm glad you did. <laughs> I, I think I think Djokovic's forehand somehow after being world number one for more weeks than anyone in the history of the sport, his forehand is still somehow probably underrated uh, because yeah. it it's it's a really really great shot. It's just uh, to me, it's not as it doesn't, it's not, doesn't have as much of a spot in the pie chart of why Novak is great. Whereas when it comes to Federer and when it comes to Nadal, I'm designating a large portion of the pie chart to the forehand and what they do on that side. Yeah. And I think, yes, but the, the, what makes Novak so great may be the whole pie chart. The fact that it is so balanced and he doesn't have bigger pie in one area. It's just, it's something to think about. Absolutely. Let's talk about surfaces and how the forehands have affected um, the relative success that the three have had on different surfaces after the break. We started talking about grips and how Nadal is the most extreme Western grip and Federer's on the other end with the Eastern. And I think a, a similar parallel can be made about Federer's forehand or, or just Federer in general having the most success on grass courts, quick, slick, low bouncing courts, and Nadal liking the the higher bouncing courts and perhaps the slower courts, namely the clay courts, and Djokovic maybe being a little bit in the middle. So it kind of works. How big a part of the success that the three have had on their respective favorite surfaces, how much of that comes back to the forehand? I think maybe quite a bit. Yeah, I would say very much so. And again, you look at Federer and uh, the, the Eastern and having having myself grown up in the Eastern, even out of the continental era, a little. Um, the, the case the case for the Eastern is accuracy. Pancho Segura, the great coach, strategist, had a great two-handed forehand, um, pointed out to us, the, the Western is a little harder to aim to specific spots. You can aim, you have your three to four foot range, but you can't quite be as accurate with it as you can with the Eastern weather. So that's why like in the old days, approach shots, approach shots, passing shots, returns, you know, there's a certain mm-hmm. type of 
precision that the game, essentially how, what defines margin in different eras? I think that Eastern is the one that you can redirect. Um, like Medvedev has an Eastern. Right. And uh, of course, Roger can redirect beautifully. He can also generate his own pace. But uh, I agree that that's the perfect grip for that. Yeah, talk about precise forehands. I mean, Federer stands head and shoulders above everyone else. And I think his uh, his pad one on the tour right now is Tsitsipas, who has incredible accuracy and uses it to hit great approach shots. That's right. So the so that's the Eastern, and of course, again, lower bounces, faster surfaces, coming to net more. It's so interesting how the game, like, like to look at a shot. It's fun to look at these shots, and then what we're what we're trying to do with all this is look at them kind of holistically in their game. So it's like yeah. how they work, how they fit in to that player's particular game and style. And you see Novak, who has this uh, sustained depth, and he's pretty accurate too. And mm -hmm. and, and Nadal, though, Nadal can. It's not about it's not always so much about accuracy as much as about lethal lethal things. He he it's a share of accurate passing shots, but it's kind of like it doesn't matter. It's a five foot part in that guy's backhand corner. Accuracy, smackeracy here. <laughs> Heaviness, right? That's right. And bounce and contact yeah. disruption. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nadal's the Nadal would be the worst one to play against from a contact point standpoint. Nadal yeah. would be the one that if it wasn't happening for you that day, that's why Nadal, for example, is so good in the wind. You know, he's not trying to pinpoint anything. He's just digging in there and hitting it. You know, he's got margin and arc and safety. And you, you've got, you got the wind, you've got the ball, you feel like you're combing your hair. It's brutal. I think the thing that all three of them have is timing and balance on the forehand. I mean, you could take a picture of any of the three of them and you get that classic shoulder turn, um, you know, the body, the legs, the lower body in, in perfect balance and the, uh, the kinetic chain coming through the ball. Uh, you don't have any awkwardness with any of them. Yeah, I mean, their, their technique is so solid all around. If I could be a little bit rigid about about the effectiveness of, of a forehand, right? You have a couple of attributes that, that could play in, right? And one is, uh, one is pace and that goes hand in hand with taking time away, right? And depth, so pace and depth. And I think Federer and Djokovic are really kind of take ownership of, of those, two, those two things. Then Nadal I think is more height and width, width of the court angles. He finds that the other two don't exactly find, even though, you know, there are exceptions to everything. Uh, and then height is kind of what you were talking about, Joel, with the contact point. So when you have a, a faster court, like a, like Wimbledon center court, you're going to be aided more by your pace and your depth and you're taking time away. And when you have a, a higher bouncing, slower clay court, it's going to be more about how do you open up the court with angles and how are you taking advantage of the high bounce and, and those kinds of things? Well, you look at Nadal, for example, you see the court becomes a circle. Sometimes when he's got that forehand because the bounce isn't going, it used to be the way back, the bounce went through the court, you know, you see the, and now it's the bounce is going, Nadal is going off the court. So the guy, you've got so much court to cover. So, and it's, it's, I'm, I was trying to think of how we even, understand these not understand these forehands what you might teach what you might learn from the the, the back the three backhands are drastically different 
in deployment, in philosophy, and all that. And we, and we cover that. The three forehands, while different, the, the, the deployment is somewhat similar in ways because of what the forehand means in the game. I mean, to destroy, to destroy the opponent. But as we um, noted, and as we've noted before, it's also the shot that a lot of the players on the ATP tour right now are going to, they're going to their opponents forehand because it also draws the most errors. And um, in many cases, it can be that thing that breaks down. Yeah, it retains this shot as, as someone with a better backhand than forehand. The, the backhand, you, once you get it kind of down, it, it doesn't betray you. But the forehand, you can get, can, demands a discipline. Yeah. And if you're not having it, I mean, we've even seen that with Federer. We've seen that with Federer, you know, the, some shankage and all that. So, so the interesting thing, I think as the game evolves, it'll be less about maybe breaking down a stroke because these two-handers are pretty solid as much as figuring out different corners of the court to, to move people into and do that with. Also, the point, part of Amy's point is let's not ignore defense here. Even a player like Nadal, I think he's a little bit stronger to his backhand side when it comes to defending. The same might be true about Djokovic. I don't think it's true about Federer. Uh, but, you know, there, there is something to be said for, uh, for thinking about the, the forehand from that perspective and just as a, a more erratic shot. But uh, Zverev and Medvedev are two players who are becoming rivals of the big three, younger rivals. And they just don't have the forehand down with, with as much uh, tact, to, to your point. Oh, no. Well, Medvedev is a very much an improv forehand. I mean, I think it's, 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 not, it's not the technical aspect of it is a little, you know, he pretty much learned it himself. And, and his buddy Rublev <laughs> kind of talked about that, you know, because Rublev yeah. has this tremendous forehand. It's very flat and powerful. And Medvedev is kind of like he there's you talk about redirect, right? There's a guy who just he just takes it in. And so figuring out how to decode him is a fascinating process. It breaks down though when when he needs to generate offense with it. Right. It really breaks down. And and Zverev has had issues with the the same thing uh throughout his career. Borna Chorich is another with a tremendous backhand and hasn't really figured out the forehand. Francis Tiafo isn't quite to that level, but he's another one uh, with some some funky technique on the forehand, and it's kind of held him back. Karen Hatchinov, you could yeah. throw in there with long yeah. technique. Chilich. It's kind of a it's kind of a, a feast or famine shot for a lot of guys outside of the big three. Yeah. Like if that thing is firing, then they're going to win in a blaze of glory. If it's producing a lot of errors, then this could get ugly. And yeah, one last so callback. Hmm? I was going to say one last callback to to earlier an earlier show we did about Andy Murray. It was the first show that we ever did, us three, and we talked about how the one of the big reasons why Murray wasn't quite what the big three were was just the potency of the forehand. It just kind of lags behind the other three. So the upside for the coaching. Okay, so the upside if we want to look at something for aspiring players of all levels is how do you invest R&D money in the forehand. And what you use, it's not as simple as just pick the guy off the rack and you want his forehand. I mean, it needs, the person I think needs to understand their game, their skill sets, their many kinds of things, righty, lefty, um, even the surfaces they play on, if they're gonna be coming to net more, et cetera. 
So, but, but the need to invest in the foreign, it's almost like the, the backhand is the cost of admission. In other words, to be a professional tennis player these days, you need to have a pretty darn good backhand. It's mostly a two-hander. The one-hander needs to be super duper good. There are one-handers, but the ones that make it, and I even think of like, I love Cole Schreiber's backhand and, and Federer and Tsitsipas, but, but it needs to be like an attention grabber. It needs to do, it, it can't, whereas the, the two-handers, it's like, yep, that's the pretty solid two-hander that a great many players have. And it can be a pretty darn good shield and it accomplishes a lot. But the one, oh yeah, but the one-hander needs to be in the zero, in the zero, zero, one percent or yeah. die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, all right. Well, that there you have it. The basis of the modern game as we, as we all agreed on um, at the start and three unbelievable forehands and Federer, Nadal and Djokovic all lots of things to be taken from um different things from the three and uh, it's always fun with this uh, stroke by stroke analysis i think we have still a couple more left we are not done uh miami will conclude we will look ahead to monte carlo very very soon uh stick with us make sure you're subscribed on whatever your preferred podcast platform is leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts comment like the video subscribe on youtube and we will see you next time on the next episode of 3.